Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Anderson, thank you so much. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. A short while ago, we heard from an emotional and an increasingly frustrated President Biden. I mean, after all, it was Vice President Biden nearly a decade ago who had the distinct responsibility of trying to formulate the government's response to the tragedy at Sandy Hook. Now, tonight, he delivered his first primetime address to the nation on gun violence and the epidemic that has become in America. You may have noticed the 56 candles burning behind him. They're meant to represent shooting victims from all U.S. states and territories. And it came amid cries of enough. After Columbine, after Sandy Hook, after Charleston, after Orlando, after Las Vegas, after Parkland, nothing has been done. This time, that can't be true. This time, we must actually do something. This isn't about taking to anyone's rights. It's about protecting children. It's about protecting families. For God's sake, how much more carnage are we willing to accept? How many more innocent American lives must be taken before we say enough, 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 enough? Enough. And he didn't hold back chastising Republicans for their opposition to new gun control measures. Yet the president did still find a way to call for compromise. After presenting a really a laundry list of demands, he anticipated, it seemed, the need for some contingencies. He called on them to at least agree to raise the age minimum that you can use to buy an assault weapon to 21. He's channeling what feels like a collective frustration because gun violence doesn't seem to care at all about who you vote for. In fact, think of the children who have been hurt. They can't vote. And there is no bottom to the grief. And with solutions that still seem to be pending in Congress, Every day, it holds the potential for even more violence. I mean, yesterday alone, a mass shooting at a medical building? Last week, 19 children and two teachers slaughtered at their school. Supermarkets, churches, subways, movie theaters, concerts. Nowhere seems to be safe. And just think about these numbers. At least 233 mass shootings just this year alone. Everyone, it's just June. And we now have more shootings than days that we've actually had in the year of 2022. More than 18,000 people have been killed by guns since January. That's according to the Gun Violence Archive. And, you know, here's another stunning figure that might really rock you to your core even more so. At least 20 mass shootings have occurred since the school terror in Uvalde. That was last Tuesday. This doesn't have to be inevitable. And this doesn't have to be our ongoing normal. 
And the question really is, should this status quo be preserved while we wait for a political stalemate to end? I mean, Exhibit A of the problem is illustrated at a House Judiciary Committee hearing on mass shootings that happened today. Here's a 12-round magazine. This magazine would be banned under this current bill. Hope the under gun, the gun is not loaded. I'm at my house. I can do whatever I want with my gun. Accusations are made. Republicans are complicit. You are not going to bully your way into stripping Americans of fundamental rights. This is on our watch. Where is the outrage? Look at the faces. These are not class graduation pictures. This bill is just another Democrat attack on the Second Amendment. Who are you here for, the kids or the killers? If you're not here for the children, why don't you go to the funeral of the killer? It is irresponsible to consider bills while we're still trying to figure out what happened. You know, it's that last question that really gives me pause. And I'm, I'm going to ask of the Congressman Matt Gates of Florida this question. What is more irresponsible? That was the word that was used. So what is more irresponsible? To wait for the next chance for Congress to be reactive to yet another mass shooting or to be proactive to try to prevent them in the first place? We may not have all the answers from Uvalde, but I just told you the number of mass shootings that have occurred this year alone, let alone in the past decade since then-Vice President spoke to the families from Sandy Hook. And frankly, that statement for me is really reminiscent of what we heard from Chief Arredondo last night, saying that the answers would come when the families quit grieving. So should we all wait for legislation to come until people quit dying? Of course, we need to explore the failures that happened in Uvalde. But that doesn't preclude us from exploring failures of Congress to reach common ground on very important issues. Families all across this country deserve answers as to why it feels like our leaders are failing time and time again to find common ground to help stop these massacres. After a heated argument and hearing today, the Democratic-led Judiciary Committee did, now they ultimately did approve the Protecting Our Kids Act this evening, which, among other things, would raise the purchase age of an assault weapon from 18 to 21. Now, it'll move on to the full House for a full vote, as you know, but the measure is not expected to pass the Senate. Now, remember, the Uvalde killer was able to buy two assault rifles on his 18th birthday. And today, there were funerals or other services for five more of the 19 children who will never even reach the age of 18. Or, for that matter, 13. Let's discuss now with our chief political correspondent, Dana Bash, and Doug High, former deputy chief of staff to former Republican House Majority Leader Eric Cantor. You know, when you hear about this hearing and you're seeing all of this come into fruition today, when you juxtapose that next to what President Biden had to say today, Dana, does this feel different? I mean, the laundry list were the demands. What's possible? Well, the first uh, of the specifics that the president talked about at renewing the assault weapons ban that he did help pass, but it expired, that is not possible. That's just not feasible. This is talking to Democrats and Republicans right now. So the other things that he talked about seem to be in the realm of discussion among the bipartisan lawmakers, raising the age 
uh, to buy these uh, high-capacity weapons from 18 to 21, the red flag uh, laws, which would mean that if you see a, a potential problem, you if you're in a position of authority, you can tell a judge and that can be uh, in a record so that a red flag will be raised if that person tries to buy a gun and, and a few other things of that ilk. The question that, that I have is whether or not the president, understandably so um, upset uh, about this and using the bully pulpit, as presidents have done so many times before him, to try to dig push Congress to do something, whether that could backfire uh, among the the small group, very small group of Republicans who are trying to work something out that they feel that they can sell back home in their red districts or in their red or purple states. So, Doug, is the bully puppet something that's counterproductive to what he's trying to achieve? On the one hand, there is the, you know, obvious need to demonstrate the outrage, to use the power. I mean, the notion of it being good to be the king, what's the point? If you're the person who can answer the question, you want one army, and you don't actually use that particular philosophy. But is it counterproductive in being able to get people to have a compromise, particularly when you know this is such a politically charged issue? I think it can be. And obviously, when Joe Biden speaks about loss, he does so from a very personal place and does so with great power and great empathy. And, and I think that registered with most of the people who watched his remarks tonight. But when he started talking about the policies, it's where he moved from politics being the art of the possible, potentially, to actually getting in the way of what the framework. And it's not even a framework yet with the Senate. It's more of a sketch of what a framework might be um, on some of these issues, including red flag laws. And, and potentially to gum up the, the, the policy and, and the politics of this. Now, if that happens, that also means that a lot of what we heard today will be rhetoric that we hear from, from a lot of Democrats, not just Biden, over the coming months. They would much rather talk about this and other issues or any other issue uh, than inflation. And certainly um, on things like automatic weapons ban, when you look at the polling that, that's very popular nationally uh, to do so, this is th- these are things that they'll be talking about in the coming months. What it seems like, though, Dana, is the idea of the convenience of almost a pretextual reason to have an exit ramp. If you're saying, look, the reason I can't go forward now is because the way that Biden actually articulated the problem, that's my exit ramp here. And so I'm going to be obstinate in some way. On the other hand, you know that Mitch McConnell has spoken about this being an issue of mental health and about school safety. So the framing of the discussion seems to be a little bit distinct. But to underscore the point that you just raised, the House Judiciary Committee did vote down party line to approve a package of gun control. So even before President Biden spoke today, you know, there was a reason to vote along party lines. Does this bode well for any potential, even in the Senate, let alone the entire House? Yeah. I mean, I think as much as uh, possible, it's important to separate out what the House is doing because it is Democratic. uh, Democrats lead the House and they can pass, even though it's the narrowest of majorities, they can pass pretty much anything regarding this issue there. It just is. It's the Senate, which is much more murky, as we've said on so many issues before. Uh, They will need a 60 vote threshold. So that means 10 Republicans, never mind Democrats like like Joe Manchin, to come along with them. You know, the one thing that I will say, and it's really was more of a question raised and and certainly talking to uh, Republican sources, they are who are involved in negotiations. They are arguing well, thanks, Mr. President, privately, that certainly didn't help because we are trying to get something done. And the more you push 
on the very, very uh, divided and very um, intransigent GOP base, the worse it's going to get. The other very important part of the discussion that we're having here is this is a president who's really upset. He is he's the guy. He's the commander in chief. He's in charge. He's in the White House. And this is happening on his watch. And he is angry. And so it's understandable that he would go out and make this speech. It was actually more surprising to me to watch him over the past week try to be quiet and try to temper uh, hit the expectations because it's obviously counter to what he really believes and wants. He was trying to play kind of the mm-hmm. political game, but clearly the word enough, he really meant it. But yet this seems like a, honestly, Doug, an, an easy lift for Republicans to say, hey, I'm doing something about this. It's not as if it's only Democrats who are being gunned down in violence. It's everyone, it seems. And so is there a moment that Republicans and Democrats might find the common ground, at least of saying it just makes sense politically to do what seems to be overwhelmingly popular to at least come to the table and look for compromise? Well, in a limited sense, depending on what comes out of the Senate or if anything comes out of the Senate, I think that may be true. But the, the reality is United States senators all represent different states and members of Congress all represent different different districts. And so if you're talking Vermont versus North Carolina versus California versus Georgia, all very different political realities in there. And then you take the congressional districts within there. Members of Congress and senators really accurately reflect, believe it or not, um, their voters and who they who they hear from and who shows up on Election Day. And it's part of why we see and on any issue, not just one this emotionally, that when you start with the negotiations, you're also looking for the exit ramps pretty quickly. And when that happens, you always blame the other side, regardless of who the other side is. Thank you, Dana Bash and Doug High. I wish the answers were different, but I know you're both right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Grieving families we are seeing in Uvalde, they still have yet to get answers. Answers as to why police fail to follow their training to confront an active shooter. Questions like why the chief at the center of this failure won't give them answers. Could there be legal repercussions for law enforcement? Should there be repercussions? Next. Look, the bottom line is we still don't know what information got from Uvalde 911 to the school district police chief and the critical moments officers were told not to enter the classroom. But answers like this about when we'll know, well, they make a bad situation worse. Whenever this is done, let the families quit grieving, then we'll do that, obviously. So that's the school district police chief and now Uvalde City Council member, Pete Arredondo. Now, my next guest has a unique perspective about the situation the chief now finds himself in. His name, Mark Iglarsh, representing Scott Peterson. Remember, he's the former school resource officer who is still awaiting trial over what happened at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida in 2018. Welcome to the show. Nice to talk to you today. And I've been eager to speak with you in particular. I'm glad you're here, Mark. I'm eager to talk to you because um, there's a lot of questions that we need answers to. And yet, of all the people who've been involved in this incident and the response to this tragedy, there's only one name we keep hearing. And when I talk about the need to have the answers, 
I'm not being reductive about the need just to point fingers and blame a person and then tie it up with a neat bow. I actually want the scope of the answers. And you represent somebody who has found himself under a microscope where people have asked for those answers, have wanted to prosecute. Tell me a little bit about what you think is going on right now with this chief in the sense of what it would look like to find yourself under the microscope with so many answers still lingering. All right. First, let me just say to the families, I just, I just, my heart goes out to all of them, and I'm so sorry for your loss. I have three children, and I can't imagine what they must be going through. If I'm them, and I'm in this predicament, I would demand answers, and I'd want those answers quick. But what I've learned through my own involvement with the Peterson case is those quick answers are also the least accurate. The only answers that you can rely upon are ones that come after an extensive and thorough investigation. That has not been done. So we're all yelling, we want answers, we demand answers. And any time a police chief or anybody says, we will get you those answers, let us do a thorough investigation, that's not good enough. There seems to be this war on cops where there's the good guys and the bad guys, and regardless of what the investigation may show, we need a villain right away. We want to pick up our pitchforks, and we have a war on first responders. And I'm here to say that that's truly unfair to the dedicated men and women who get up every morning and leave their families not knowing if they're going to return to their households. And they go out there and fight for us to put their lives on the line. They deserve a thorough investigation first. And if they've done anything wrong, that's fine. They could be condemned for it at some point and maybe even jailed for it. But let's just wait. Well, here's the obvious retort to that notion. I do echo the sentiment that there are so many brave men and women in law enforcement who are fighting to make sure, just as they would like to return home this evening, that others who are relying on them will be able to return home in the evening. And what we see here is on this balancing test, as you talk about the need for the delay in a thorough investigation, against the notion this is really a, really a closed universe of facts in terms of what the families are even asking for, even the bite-sized pieces of what was behind the decision in real time not to enter the classroom? There is a thorough investigation about the overall, you know, maybe systemic issues or other factors, but why not have the answers to the questions of why did you decide not to go in? That's a pretty limited set of facts. It doesn't disrupt the notion of respecting law enforcement. Yeah, I, I disagree with you. That takes a lot of time. In other words, I know I've learned from my case with Scott Peterson. Listen, before I took his case, I was one of the many people who condemned him. I said, oh, they tell me in the media he's a coward, the coward of Broward. He must be. I'm not even going to meet with the guy. Reluctantly, I met with him. And then I did a thorough investigation and I saw transcripts. I saw what he was saying in real time, asking fellow officers, where's the shooter? I'm hearing him order a code red. I'm hearing him order officers to watch their back, evidencing that he thought maybe there was a sniper. It was completely different than what we were led to believe. So sometimes it looks black and white, and it looks like we can condemn an officer. And that's so unfair to the officer like Scott Peterson, who for 32 years was a decorated officer and did everything he could before, during, and after the shooting to help protect and save lives. You know, it's interesting because what you are describing as condemnation for many would ask and say, it's a question. I mean, there is the idea, and I agree with you. Believe me, as a former prosecutor, I know the value and the beauty of the presumption of innocence and the burden that must be met. At the same token, 
the condemnation does not equate to asking questions like, can we have the information? I know it will take some time to get the full scope of it, but you must see that there yeah. has been some stonewalling and tight-lipped responses that is not really deserving of the families. And I'm just wondering, how long do you think quick ought to be? There's piecemeal and then there's stonewalling. Where, where should we be right now eight days in? Let me just say that anyone who's stonewalling should not be. They need to be sensitive to these families and the public at large who demand answers. We do want answers. But there's a difference between stonewalling and saying to people, we must do a detailed and thorough investigation. How about speaking to each of the officers? Do you know that in my case, Scott Peterson, they didn't go through and ask him step by step, what were you thinking? Why didn't you go into the building? To this day, they've never done that. They did some quick examination about him being a witness on, on, the, on the Cruz case, but not to ask him, why didn't you go in? If they did, they would realize that he's innocent and being sacrificed. So let's just wait. Let's wait and speak to the officers. Let's look at everything. And then if there are things that need to be done, that need to be corrected, if there are officers who need to face even criminal charges, we'll get to that. But Mark not a risk of judgment. Mark, I understand your position and respect your client in particular, but we can both agree that our level of patience and timeline will be different than the families that are grieving today. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. I'm Mark sure. Iglarsh. Thank you, Laura. I truly Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. And you know, we are mourning with these families as funerals continued today in Uvalde, including a funeral of a little girl named Elihana Torres. She was only 10 years old when she was murdered in her school just nine days ago. And her family, like those of the 20 other victims, are grieving her immeasurable loss. But there was one member of her family that could not be there to say goodbye to his little girl, her own father. And it wasn't because he didn't want to be there. That father, Ellie Torres, is incarcerated in Kentucky, serving time in a prison for a nonviolent drug offense. Now, when he learned of her murder, he requested a temporary release to be able to attend his own daughter's funeral. Not her birthday party, not a recital, her funeral. And his request was denied. A state rep weighed in, pushing the likes of Governor Bashir and even President Biden to intervene. Still, it was denied, but they did offer him a chance to watch it streaming online. Kim Kardashian, increasingly known for using her platform to raise awareness of criminal justice reform, even asked the Federal Bureau of Prisons directly, saying that every parent deserved the right to say their last goodbye. But none of the appeals for his release, and a temporary one at that, made a difference, at least not in time for his daughter's funeral. A girl whose family says she was loving and compassionate, with a smile that could light up your soul, they say. But her own father's request for compassion was denied. And what is undeniable is that at the intersection of grief and politics, compassion, it seems, is at times nowhere to be found. But we still must look for the answers, the ones that the families deserve. Perpetual mass shootings is where we find ourselves today, burying little girls and little boys mothers and fathers who begin their day in the places where they ought to feel and be safe and ending their days terrorized, whose legacy and impact we frankly will never be able to capture in a soundbite if we had a hundred hours to describe 
what they meant to their loved ones. But we do have 100 senators and 435 representatives. So what will they do? And will whatever they decide be enough and in time? The president tonight called for a repeal of the law that protects gun manufacturers from prosecution. That comes as a new lawsuit illustrates just how high the bar is for holding gun makers accountable. And that case is actually being litigated in New York, where in April, 10 people were shot on a Brooklyn subway. Eileen Stewart was one of those 10 people. She's on her way to work when a bullet fractured part of her spine. She's now suing Glock, the company that made the alleged shooter's weapon. Eileen Stewart's attorney, Sanford Rubenstein, joins me now. Sanford, welcome to the show. I'm glad you're here. And, and first, how is your client doing? For many people who have been reeling from the perpetual state of mass shootings, at times it's hard to even have all of the coverage on what has happened to those who have been the victims. She has fractures. It was a spinal issue. She had a bullet that went through her buttocks that tore through her abdomen, causing her to need a cholesterol bag. She had a fractured spine. She's in the process of waiting for a second surgery to see if the cholesterol can be reversed. This woman will suffer for the rest of her life, not only the physical injuries she suffered, but also the psychological damage. Uh, this should not be happening in the city, in the state, in this country. And you're pointing to Glock as the gun manufacturer as a way to get some semblance of justice for your client. Tell me why you're pursuing this lawsuit. We allege that through their marketing practices, Glock has contributed to creating and maintaining a public nuisance and endangering the public health and safety in New York, which violates Section 898 of the General Business Law, which was enacted for the very purpose of creating a pathway where there is a danger to public health and safety for victims to recover from gun manufacturers. The initial statute, which was passed by the legislature, one of the last bills signed by Governor Cuomo, was recently declared constitutional by a state court, by a federal court judge uh, in Albany, and that's being appealed. And that appeal will be very important because if his decision is sustained, then we believe this lawsuit can go forward in federal court because there's an avenue for victims to get compensation for their pain and suffering. Now, this is almost a, I don't want to call it a test case in the sense that it's something that should be dismissive of, but the idea that this is something, one of the first instances to really test this law. I wonder, Sanford, I mean, for people who are listening, um, it seems to many that it might be a tangential relationship between the marketing and what takes place and what took place in the Brooklyn subway. I mean, you have the shooter, obviously, who was engaged in this horrific behavior. Then you've got the idea of marketing practices. Bridge the gap for me in terms of what claims you're, you're making to show that well, there is a correlation that led to your client's injury. If you go directly to the lawsuit, you see that we allege the marketing that they engaged in, which emphasized fire, firearm characteristics such as their high capacity uh, and ease of concealment, purposely supplying more firearms than the, legit, than the legitimate market could bear, to induce sales in the secondary market, not training dealers to avoid straw sales other than illegal transactions, and refusing to terminate contracts with distributors who sold to dealers with disproportionately high volumes of guns trace the crime scenes. There have been, there's a book written about mm -hmm. Glock, the Glock Prize of American, uh, America's Gun by Paul Barrett, which outlines some of these marketing practices, and we look forward to deposing 
those who are high executives at Glock to find out exactly what was going on in this company. How did the movies get the Glock to put it in it? How did the rappers get the Glock to, to rap about the Glock? We are looking forward to those depositions. So Sanford, it sounds like you are extending beyond the immediate injury of your client and talking more about the gun manufacturer as a whole over many years. I mean, the book you cite was back in, I think, 2008. This was actually an accident in law in 2021. So there's going to be a whole lot of discovery that you're anticipating or hoping for to try to bridge that gap. We're going to stick with it and see what happens. Thank you so much. Thank you. And CNN has reached out to Glock Incorporated for comment. And frankly, we have not heard back, but we'll follow this story anyway. A different but also important legal question tonight. What happens to the Me Too movement after Johnny Depp's $15 million award in the defamation suit against his ex-wife, Amber Heard? Now, justice is supposed to be blind, we're told, but are the bright lights of fame seeping through thanks to public opinion and social media's power? We'll talk about it next. So Johnny Depp and Amber Heard both won damages and were ordered to pay damages in their respective lawsuits against one another. But in the court of public opinion, it seems that Depp is the clear victor. The actor says the jury, quote, gave me my life back, unquote, while Amber Heard says the decision is a, quote, setback for women. Multiple newspaper op-ed columns say the case marks the death of the Me Too movement as well. But will it really have lasting cultural impact for non-celebrities, or is it just the hot topic of the moment? CNN's Audie Cornish joins me now, and I'm thrilled to have you on. Audie, good to see you. Um, I wonder about that last aspect of it, the notion that they're saying and opining that the Me Too movement based on this may actually be dead. What's your take in the court of public opinion? Well, first, I want to say there have been so many obits for the Me Too movement over the last couple of years with each and every celebrity case, celebrity outing. There is a round of hand wringing about whether or not this is effective or not. I can say as someone who has followed this for a long time, one of the things uh, Me Too activists and Me Too activism did was sort of um, recenter the media ecosystem and the media narrative um, in a story like this. So in the past, as an accuser, you really didn't have much recourse if you weren't going through legal channels, which we know have a lot of biases uh, when it comes to dealing with people who uh, are victims of abuse. But all of a sudden, for a, a few years there, people could raise allegations through the news with journalists who are far more interested in corroborating and investigating sometimes cases, in the case, say, of Harvey Weinstein, things that were considered common knowledge um, were all of a sudden fair game to talk about in a way they weren't before. But secondly, the use of first-person narrative. You know, fundamentally, the case everyone just watched between Depp and Heard was not their divorce proceeding. It was not any kind of criminal proceeding. We were watching a defamation case, right? So this was about speech, one of the most potent tools um, of modern day activism and potent tools for the Me Too movement. And yet 
very little, frankly, was discussed in terms of the legal flowchart of looking at a defamation case. Really, their entire lives appeared to have been on trial. And frankly, social media was here for all of it. I mean, there was so many commentary about it. There were so many memes. Yeah. It was featured on SNL. There were conversations. Even Monica Lewinsky wrote that piece in the Vanity Fair talking about it, calling it courtroom porn and that we are all guilty of indulging in it. I mean, but it's I incredible wonder. how yeah. much the ecosystem, the media ecosystem has changed just since 2016, right? Mm. Um, people are talking about this being one of the first um, TikTok celebrity trials, uh, which is significant. Um, I'm sure there'll be questions raised about how that jury was able to say truly isolated from any information about this case for six weeks, <laughs> given mm. you know how much of the media zone was flooded um, with independent social media campaigns. Um, and fundamentally, something has not changed, which is that for a while, it seemed as though um, the Me Too movement had undermined the idea of the perfect victim, that somebody had to be unassailable in so many ways in order for them to be credible um, mm. against the accused, right? It sort of spread that burden out a little bit. That's what I think fundamentally the sort of believe women um, mantra or slogan was about. It was saying that the person who is on trial is the accused, not the accuser. Um, and it's interesting that at the end of Heard's op-ed, the one that's in question here, she talks about the idea of taking on um, all of the sort of uh, abuse, you know, in the in the in the social media space and in the public. And in the end, that remained right. In the end, um, she still took on a great deal of reputational damage in making these claims. And I think that goes against something we've been told by a lot of people, which is that accusers are uh, seeking fame and uh, that this is like such a great position to be in. It's not. There's no winning. No one's covered in glory. And I think that uh, it was a very sort of ugly, stretched out process um, that fundamentally damaged them both, but certainly didn't give her what she was looking for. Well, the notion of believe women as the reflexive action in the Me Too movement seems to be challenged in this notion. The question will be, will that truly be the case for women who don't have name recognition, like an Amber Heard, or who you don't have of a Johnny Depp? And will this be about backlash, resisting the Me Too movement, or really about trying to find the truth? Audie Cornish, so nice talking to you. What an asset to have you at CNN. Thank you for having me. The king of electric cars is now pulling the plug on office workers who try to work remotely all the time. Elon Musk warning Tesla employees that if they don't put in 40 hours a week at the office, they don't work for him anymore. So the question now is, will corporate America follow his lead? We've got Silicon Valley insider Kara Swisher telling us how that could clash with his Twitter takeover bid. Next. So Elon Musk has said what's happening to him feels like a Looney Tunes episode. He was tweeting about political backlash, but he's also at the center of so much controversy, it's enough to make, well, the Tasmanian devil dizzy. Did I just date myself with that? You know what I'm talking about. We're still waiting to see if he can seal the deal with Twitter, but he's also recently denied sexual misconduct allegations, and now he's making waves at Tesla, telling his remote office workers to come back to the physical office for at least 40 hours a week, or resign. He's complaining the pandemic tricked people and thinking they don't need to work hard. And today, even Musk complained about his own work, tweeting, 
I never wanted to be CEO, just wanted to work on product, technology, running companies hurts my heart. Joining us now is New York Times contributing writer Kara Swisher. She's also the host of the Sway podcast. Kara, I'm glad you're here. Look, some people are thinking that maybe Elon Musk has said maybe the quiet part out loud that other employers are thinking. The idea of, look, this whole remote work is not working for maybe the culture of the employers. What do you make of it? Well, I don't think he's, uh, look, other people have done this. David Solomon at Goldman, Jamie Dimon at Citicorp. Um, A lot of companies are talking about this, wanting people back in the workplace. What they are doing is facing a backlash from some employees who don't want to do it. Apple had tried to move people back into the workplace. They have a fantastic headquarters in Silicon Valley, and uh, they've been facing some struggle getting a lot of people back there. And Elon just decided, like a lot, like several people, again, like David Solomon from Goldman, that you're coming to work or you're not coming, essentially. And so you know, I, I, I'm a little tired of Elon's pontificating on every subject known to man. I have a feeling we're going to get his chocolate chip cookie recipe next or something. <laughs> but in this case, uh, you know, and he'll be mad at whoever else's chocolate co- co- cookie, some leftist AOC's chocolate chip cookie recipe. I don't care about that. But in this case, I think if it's his company, this is the way he wants to run it. That's perfectly fine. And people can decide if they want to work for a company now they've gotten used to other things. So in this case, I think he's being entirely reasonable to say the factory workers have to come in and work longer hours than this. The people to create great products, you need to be in the same place. A lot of people think that. And so that's his company. And again, people can can walk with their feet and they want companies that allow you to stay home all the time, like a lot of tech companies. People can work there. And so it's it's a legitimate thing to say uh, about how he wants to conduct his workplace. And so people are going to object, but don't work for Elon Musk then, I feel like. How you have missed the chance to say, how do you like them cookies, is just beyond me right now, Kara. <laughs> I got to tell you, this is one of those moments you got to say it. And now I'm yeah, salivating yeah. about this very notion. But, you know, it is the idea of whatever take it or leave it philosophy. Well, that's when you own the yeah. company. But guess what? He's got a new company he may be taking over. And I'm wondering what those company yeah. members are thinking about this very issue, given, look, he's talk, talk about factory workers. Those who are in a union in Germany are already giving pushback on mm-hmm. this idea of, yeah, you might be yeah. the man, so to speak, but we're the workers. Yeah, that's true. There's a lot of, there's a lot of worker unrest in a lot of tech companies, look, look, or, or Starbucks or Apple, and they're trying to unionize in the stores. There's definitely an Amazon is facing that. But again, I feel like this is the CEO. This is the rules he wants to make, and he will face backlash, and he'll deal with it, or he won't, and he won't get workers, or he won't. And so I, I think he's just making, he's not saying something that's totally off you know, off on a, on a different field than other people, because a lot of employers do feel that you need to be together to do creative work. And probably the totally remote workforce is not going to work for a lot of people. Um, I think, uh, you know, I, I hate to, some of the stuff he's been tweeting is somewhat nonsensical at this point. Um, but some of it is, it makes sense. And in this, in this way, I kind of agree with him that if, that it, creating, doing something like Tesla requires presence probably, and, uh, and cannot be done remotely. You can't build culture, you can't be creative. I think that's a, a, a decent argument. And again, people don't have to agree with it, but it certainly isn't out of the uh, mainstream in that regard. Well, what about the, I mean, the lawyer in me asks about the notion of lawsuits and the exposure mm-hmm. to this, because there are legitimate reasons that many people have to not be um, in a yes. physical workspace. And so, and he's no stranger, yep. by the way, as a company owner, there's no stranger to the idea of lawsuits mm-hmm. and litigation about work culture, about yeah. the demands, about the t- take it or leave it approach. Sure. Does that o- open up to more of this? 
you know, I think he got in more trouble during the, when we didn't have the vaccines when he was demanding people be at work. Remember, that was pretty controversial. But in this case, I don't think you can sue for not being at work, right? I think he did say, and he did note in one of the memos, if you have exceptions, we, it's impossible for you not to work remotely. I will review them and decide on this. And so he didn't say everybody, right? But I don't know if there's going to be a hold of like, you, you right not to go to work as a worker. And I think that's going to be, it's going to be debated, but this idea that workers have all the power is not, it's just not going to true, especially as we're moving into a recessionary period of possibly contraction in mm. jobs. Uh, you know, point. the power dynamic between workers and employers are going to, ch is changing all the time. And it certainly changed during the pandemic. Yeah. People do save a lot of time, not commuting and things like that. And, and they like it. Uh, but a lot of workplaces are going to say, we need you back in here. I think there'll be more of a hybrid for most people, but in his case, yeah. this is what he wants. And if, if that's what he wants, don't work for him if that's what you don't want. I think that's really was his message. Well, at the end of the day, either way, no cookies for you if you don't come in. Thank you, Kara <laughs> Swisher, so much. Everyone, we'll be right back Thank after you so a much. quick moment. Thank you. Thanks for watching. I'll be back tomorrow night. Don Lemon starts now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.